All right. Speaking with the tongues of men and angels today, increment 70 of We See Jesus. And the Greek will be ho de panta kataskuasis theos. Greek speakers, pardon my pronunciation, but it says, but the builder of all things is God. We're going to go to Hebrews chapter 3. As you know, we have a translation for the first two chapters. We may be putting that up on the website before too long. Hebrews chapter 3, and we'll take a moment of silent preparation. And Father, as always, we entrust our spirit to you, give you our heart that we may be taught of you. With the promise from the scripture, they shall all be taught of God. We thank you for that privilege today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 is a paragraph within this homily, a homily designed for the churches. Therefore, sanctified siblings, participants in a heavenly calling, carefully consider the apostle and archpriest of our confession, that is, what we acknowledge as ultimate reality. Jesus, who was faithful to God, who appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all God's house. For he, Jesus, is considered worthy of greater glory than Moses, inasmuch as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. To be sure, every house is built by someone, and here's our phrase, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses, on the one hand, was faithful as a servant in all God's house for a testimony to what would be spoken in the future. But Christ, as a son over his house, that is, God's house, whose house we demonstrate ourselves to be, if only we hold fast to the boldness and the boast of our hope. Frank Lloyd Wright designed a house called Falling Water in Mill Run, Pennsylvania, for his clients, the Kaufman family. Five million people have toured this architectural phenomenon since 1964. I'm thinking of you, Chuck, and Fran, you too. Though Falling Water has attained fame with millions of people, and rightly so, the house cannot be detached from the architect of it. Frank Lloyd Wright was responsible for its remarkable, innovative, aesthetic, and utilitarian design. We might say that he is more deserving of honor than the house. One reason for this is that the house would not even be if it weren't for Frank Lloyd Wright, whom God gifted with remarkable creativity and talent, and an artistic differentiation of consciousness. Frank Lloyd Wright was around prior to the house being built. 
the house called Falling Water. He preceded the house called Falling Water. So the builder, if we may call him that, not only has superior honor than the house he built, he also has priority over the house in that he pre-existed his own creation. Frank Lloyd Wright pre-existed falling water and brought it into existence. Now Hebrews 3, especially verses 2 through 6, deals with God's house, with a house that God built per his promise through the man of God in 1 Samuel, also known as 1 Reigns 2.35. We've looked at that many times. The house that God built is the same as the house that Jesus is building currently, presently. The theme here then, loosely speaking, is Christ the Builder, Latin Christus Faber. Jesus famously announced at Caesarea Philippi after the pronouncement by his father through Cephas, Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build my church. He does this as the one by whom God made the ages. Again, Jesus is speaking as the one, God's son, by whom God made the ages, which means the universe in Hebrews 1-2. God is the builder of all things, and he built all things through his son. The builder of all things is also the builder and maker of a city which has foundations. Very interesting phrase in Hebrews 11, 9 to 10. A city which has foundations, making it distinct from the tents, the foundationless tents in which Abraham, and really indeed all of us as pilgrims, are traveling in while wandering through this age. To go farther, the theme of this section, 3, 2 to 6, is Christ the builder as God. Christ the builder as God. If we compare especially Hebrews 3, 4 with John, John's gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And Christ the builder as the faithful son, the man Christ Jesus. He is the builder as God. He is the builder as the man, the Messiah, Jesus. Then he says something that should really grab our attention. And this is why I call our local church and any local church a phalanx, an advancing formation of Christian soldiers, we could say. The gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. We usually think of the gates coming at the church, but what's really happening here is the church is coming at the gates to kick them down. And it won't stand up against the church. The church that Jesus builds will overtake Hades to the extent that Hades will ultimately be empty and the church fill all things. Because the Christ who fills the church 
now, Colossians 3.11, is destined to fill all things with himself. Resulting in God being all in all. You get this from verses. I'm not just rattling these things off as lofty principles. It's found in 1 Corinthians 15.28, Ephesians 1.22 and 4.10. The gates of Hades don't hold up against the advance of the church. The church's relentless advance. And I wish you might take time to read Philippians 1, 27 to 28, because that's where I got the idea for phalanx, to call a church a phalanx. It's an accurate name for a, a local church and for the church at large. Gates of Hades don't hold up against the advance of the church because Hades is about death. Thanatos. Hades is about death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, death is an adversary, the last adversary that will be demolished. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 55 includes the taunt against death. Hey, death, where's your sting? Hey, death, where's your victory? Revelation 1, 18 and 20, 14, both ends of Revelation show that death and Hades are together. And so death is all about Hades. Hades is all about death, and the gates of Hades aren't going to stand up against the church. The advance will kick down those gates. And once again, I'll say it this way. The gates of Hades don't hold up and won't hold up against the church's relentless advance because Hades is about death, but in Christ all will be made alive. If Hades is about those who are dead, but in Christ all who are made alive, who's left in Hades? 1 Corinthians 15.22. Now the reason that I think of our assembly as a phalanx is because we are a small part of the advancing army of soldiers who are citizens of heaven fighting shoulder to shoulder and shield to shield for the faith of the good news, it says in Philippians 1.27. And 28 goes on to say, not at all frightened by our adversaries. Our adversaries includes the diabolos, the slanderer, death itself, thanatos, and the flesh. If you want to know why I call us a phalanx, it's not just because I'm playing a pretend game. It's because of Philippians 127 to 28 and 320 to 21. Our citizenship is in heaven. Also something we previously studied, Philippians, even before the fourth G, the fourth gospel, we studied it even before we moved into our current surroundings, our current building. So the church in Toto that Jesus is building is an advancing army of countless phalanxes who are kicking in the gates of Hades. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3 then. For he, Jesus, is considered worthy of greater glory than Moses, inasmuch as the builder of a house 
has greater honor than the house itself. That's why I began with a little illustration of falling water and Frank Lloyd Wright. Luke the Evangelist, that's what he's called. He wrote Luke and he also wrote Acts as a sequel to Luke, tells us that when members of the Freedmen's Synagogue, as it was called, were unable to withstand the wisdom and the spirit of which, by which Stephen, the deacon, spoke, according to Acts 6.11, they, quote, secretly persuaded men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. Moses and God. In that order, they were not exactly equating Moses with God here, to be sure, but these so-called witnesses against Stephen were surely honoring Moses very highly. Moses and God, blaspheming Moses and God. Moses was put on a pretty high level, maybe even on kind of a virtual par with God. But the pastor who preached this sermon that we call Hebrews used a particularly rhetorical dexterity to demonstrate the great honor of Jesus over Moses. In fact, as in the exordium, the introductory sentence, 1, 1 to 4, the PT shows that Jesus is on a par with God. We could say equal with God. Paul actually comes out and says that in Philippians 2.6. In Hebrews 1.2, the PT declares that God made the universe through a son whom he appointed heir, H-E-I-R, of all things. The son is he through whom God made the universe. And the Greek phrase is epoiesin tus aeonas through whom God made the universe. God made the universe in its spatial and its temporal aspects through a son whom the writer also describes as the visible radiance of God's glory and the exact visible self-representation of his invisible reality. So now in Hebrews 3, 4, we are told that the builder of all things is God. It looks like this in the Greek. Ha, de, 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 panta, p-a-n-t-a. That means everything. Ta, panta is all things. Ho, de, panta, and then this long word. Kata, k-a-t-a, s K-E-U-S-A-S. Kata skuasis. Make that an A here. Kata skuasis. But the builder of everything, the builder of everything, is God. Theos in the Greek. Theos. That's the phrase that we're using today, not necessarily as a title, but it's a key phrase in Hebrews. Ha de panta kata skuasas theos. 
the builder of all things, is God. The creator of the universe, Hebrews 1-2, is the builder of all things, Hebrews 3-4. The creator of the universe and the builder of all things is one, O-N-E. He is God. God created the universe through the Son. Consequently, we'd have to say that God built all things through the Son. We could say then that the builder of all things is the Son, and that the builder of the house in which Moses proved to be faithful is also the Son. The Son, that is Jesus, is of such glory and honor as to be actually on a par with God or on a level with God. He is the builder of all things, just as God is the builder of all things. And he's building a church. Similarly, in Ephesians, we did study that recently in 2019 under the Doctrine of the Mystery 2019, Jesus is said there to be the head of all things and the head of the church, which is his body. That's Ephesians 1, to 23. The body is called his pleroma. That is, the body is the fullness of him presently, which will one day be the fullness of all the universe, a new creation. The builder of the house is also the builder of the church. The house, remember, that's a key word that comes down to us not only from 1 Samuel 2.35, but also from Numbers chapter 12 and verse 7, which is being worked on here. The house that we are is the body of which Christ is the head. We hold fast to the hope, and we're going to get into this. One of the most important practical messages that we've ever had from this pulpit will be coming pretty soon because in Hebrews 3, 7, we are told today, if you hear his voice, the voice of the Holy Spirit, don't harden your hearts. Like a certain generation did as they wandered through a place called no man's land and perished in the desert. So we hold fast to the hope in verse 6 of chapter 3 as we hold fast to the head. The head and the hope are both one. We hold fast to the hope, Hebrews 3, 6. We hold fast to the head as members of the body, Colossians 2, 19. Pair those together and you've got what we might call an insight. Hebrews 3.6 compared with Colossians 2.10. We hold fast to the hope as we hold fast to the head. Both the head and the hope is Jesus. 1 Timothy 1.1 makes it explicit. He calls him Jesus or Christ Jesus, our hope. By holding fast to him, we demonstrate ourselves to be. That's how I translate this phrase. We don't, we don't, Say, he doesn't say, you are his house if. He means you demonstrate yourself to be, show yourselves to be, reveal yourselves to be his house by doing this one thing, only one thing, holding the hope boldly, boastfully, as we could almost say, the hope that is before us. 
That's the one thing that causes us to be shown to be his house. Jesus the Son is analogous to the builder who has more honor than the house. He has more honor than the whole house, including Moses, who is a servant in that house. Jesus, the Son, as God, is the builder of all things. He is greater than Moses, just as God is greater than Moses, because Jesus is God. Moreover, as the man, Christ Jesus, he has more glory and honor than Moses as a superior mediator. In fact, now as the only mediator between God and all of humanity, 1 Timothy 2.5. Now, as we've noted, our commentary if you want to call it that, on Hebrews, bears the brands of previous studies. And we can't help that. Among those studies is the fourth G, studies in John's gospel. We've referred to it many times. In the leading section of John's prologue, John's prologue is the first 18 verses of that gospel. In the leading verses, we are told that the word, halagos, coexisted with God as God in the beginning, and that nothing ever came into being without the Word. John 1, 1 to 3. The Word, we find out, is none other than God's only eternally begotten Son. Same person. John 1, 14, 1, 18. Nothing that was ever brought into being out of non-existence was ever brought into existence without the word who existed before anything ever came into being. When the word was made flesh, perhaps the most shocking statement in all of literature, including the Bible, when the word was made flesh, the name that was given to him was Jesus. And the title that was given to him is the Christ. Therefore, in John 1.17, we hear the law came through, you guessed it, Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Just as in the Oxasis in Hebrews, Moses isn't being degraded or demeaned here. It's just showing a superiority of Jesus, a superior honor. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So this dual declaration is not meant to demean Moses or even to contrast Jesus with Moses. It is meant to reveal that Jesus the Christ is the agent and fulfiller of grace and truth. The personification, listen carefully to this because this is something we developed in John. It needs to be further developed. The personification of God's unilateral and unconditional covenant faithfulness. Jesus is the unilateral fulfillment of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. And we'll see this. This is actually borne out in Galatians chapter 3, 
verses 23 to 25, where faith or faithfulness is equated with and interchangeable with Christ. The coming of Christ is the coming of faith or the coming of faithfulness. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment and the personification of God's unilateral and unconditional covenant fidelity or faithfulness. So as with Hebrews, so with John. Jesus is revealed to have a greater glory even than Moses. Jesus the Christ is the incarnate word, the incarnate eternal word, without whom nothing that ever came into existence from non-existence ever came to be. Moses is among the beings and things that came into being through the word, a.k.a. the Son. The idea is that Jesus is not only superior in glory and honor to Moses, but that he is also, and this is an important word, prior to Moses, prior to Moses. He existed before Moses, even though Jesus was born hundreds of years after Moses. What are we doing here? Question I asked often in DLT, doing in living theology, which is well worth reviewing the notes on, what are we doing? We are doing theology. In fact, we're doing theology in a theological, Christological exegesis of the epistle to the Hebrews. So it might be profitable to review the messages or the notes of what we call DLT, doing in living theology, which led up to this exegesis. We get into Hebrews quite a bit in that series, 15 parts. All of this comes into play in a different way than in, than in John in Hebrews 3, especially in 3, 3 through 6. Jesus is considered worthy of greater glory than Moses inasmuch as the builder of a house, we use Frank Lloyd Wright as an example, has greater honor than the house itself, we use falling water as an exquisite example. The house in which Moses was faithful is the house over which Jesus is faithful. The writer here, the PT, deftly, very skillfully, uses two little prepositions, N for Moses, N, in. That has 36 meanings. It's the workhorse of prepositions in the Greek text, E-N. We have it in transliteration this way. But he uses for Jesus epi, which means over. Epi, E-P-I, epi. So Moses was faithful in all God's house, but Jesus is a son over God's house, just as he's the head over the body. Epi and N, two little prepositions but positioned and deployed just right in a rhetorical way to show the superiority of Jesus Christ. And so once again, we have the auxasis at work, the superior honor. So let's say it this way. If Moses were the head of maintenance, and I like maintenance because I used to be a janitor. My grandfather was the head of the maintenance of a high school and, well, K through 12 school. 
and I got to do a lot of the dirty work, but the maintenance, imagine the, if Moses were the head of maintenance over the house called Falling Water. We would certainly give him his props, as people say, which means give him due respect, especially if he were faithful in that service. But we'd give more respect to the architect and the builder, to be sure, especially if we've toured it. And I have, and it's a remarkable place, good place to go with the family. I don't even think it may even still be open. Hebrews 3, 4 says, quote, to be sure, every house is built by someone. But the builder of all things is God. There it is again. Haudepanta kataskuasis theos. Theos. The house in question here, again, if you're going to use Gezerah Shava, which takes common words in different texts, look at 1 Samuel 2.35 and again in Numbers 12.7 where house is deployed in different ways. The house in question here is a house built by the builder of all things who is God who built all things through his son who is Jesus of whom it can also be said that he, Jesus, is the builder of all things, the builder of the house in which Moses was faithful and over which the son is is faithful. This also has an implication that the son is faithful or obedient for everyone in the house. That his obedience counts. You say, how does that work? All right, how about this? Romans 5.19. Through his obedience, one man's obedience, the many were constituted as righteous. And so that many, as we've seen a thousand times already, at least it seems like it, means all. We'll get to that more in, when we get to the place like Hebrews 5 9, where it says he's the author of eternal salvation to those who obey him. We'll see what that means. What if his obedience counts for the whole house? What if his obedience counts for everybody? Just a question for a future dialectic. So once again, the PT skillfully deploys the preposition epi, meaning over in Hebrews 3.6, with n, meaning in, in Hebrews 3.2, where Moses is spoken of twice as being faithful in God's house, in all of God's house. That's quite a compliment. Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Jesus is faithful, faithful as a son, Moses was faithful as a servant in the house. Jesus was faithful as a son, an inheritor and an heir over the house. As it says in Hebrews 1-2, God appointed the son heir of all things. God loved the world so much he gave his son to it. God loves the son so much he gave the world to him. He loves you so much he gives you the son and the world. The writer is dealing with three Christological realities here. If I were to write a systematic theology, I might include these. One, the preeminence of Jesus over Moses in terms of honor and glory. That's the first Christological reality. Two, the priority of Jesus. And this is something I want to bring in. The priority of Jesus in terms of his being prior to Moses in time as well as in eternity. 
and three, the personal identity of Jesus, which is evidently human and divine. One person, two natures, divine and human, which he assumed in his incarnation. Jesus, a man conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin woman, belongs to the divine identity. And this does not disrupt Jewish monotheism. Moses, the household servant of God, was faithful in God's house. Jesus is faithful as as God's son over God's house. Now, speaking of the temporal priority of the son over Moses, let's consider the testimony of someone we've considered recently, John the Immerser, also known as the baptizer or the Baptist. John 1.15 says that John bore witness, and the Greek word here for bore witness is martyreo, where we get our word in the English language. It comes down to us essentially as martyr. And it looks like this in its lemma form, M-A-R-T-U-R-E long O, martyreo. And that would look like this if we were to transliterate the languages or the letters, martyreo. So that word is also related to marturion, M-A-R-T. T-U-R-I-O-N, which means testimony, and that's a key word in Hebrews. In fact, marturion is used for testimony in Hebrews 3.5. So both John the baptizer and Moses, in one way or another, bore testimony to Jesus Christ and to his priority and superiority. So let's back up a little bit. In John 1.15, John bore witness, martureo, Concerning him, that's the word, the only eternally begotten son from the father. He bore witness about him and cried out saying, this is the one of whom I've been saying, and I love this, this testimony, he who is coming after me has surpassed me because he existed before me. Now we know that Jesus was John's cousin and that Jesus was born six months after John, so how can he be before him? Well, the immersive testimony regarding Jesus, who was born six months after John, had to do with the superiority of rank and the priority of existence of Jesus, the Son, over John. Because Jesus is the Word, and the Word always existed with God and as God, The word who became flesh, one, number one, came after John by birth and entry into history as a man. He came after John by birth and entry into history as a man. Two, he surpassed John in rank. Three, he preceded John in existence. Four, he shared the divine identity as a man on a par with God. But what's more, five, he was on a par with God because he is God. 
The priority of Jesus, the Lamb of God, as he's called in John 129 and 136, as the narrative is underway in John, the priority of Jesus the Lamb over John the Immerser who points to him has to do not only with a temporal priority but also with an eternal priority. Jesus as the eternally begotten Son of God, John 3.16, John 3.18, and as the Word who was with God and was God always in John 1.1, pre-existed Moses both in time and in eternal existence. Jesus, to use Isaiah 57, 15's language, Jesus inhabited eternity before John was born, before Moses, who was literally a beautiful child, according to Hebrews eleven twenty three. In Exodus 2, 1 to 2, before Moses, that beautiful child was born and put into a little ark and sent down the river Nile and picked up by Pharaoh's daughter and grew up in Pharaoh's house, etc. This significant idea of temporal and eternal priority of Jesus is also found later on in John, John 8. In Jesus' controversial statement to his opponents, who had claimed privilege association with the renowned patriarch Abraham. Jesus said, I'm telling you, most assuredly, before Abraham was, I am. I eternally existed. That is, detractors then picked up stones to throw at him, tells the story. Jesus had claimed to be equal with God. And he said the same thing that, Yahweh said from the burning bush to Moses, I am that I am. He claimed to be God. Later on, they would explain that to him. We're stoning you, not because of a good work you've done, but because you make, yourselves equal, you make yourself equal with God in John 10, 33. So it's profitable for us to note that previous to the I am proclamation of Jesus in John he had already said, quote, Abraham was overjoyed that he would see my day. He saw it and rejoiced. That's John 8.56. That Abraham, listen carefully, saw Jesus' day means that he saw Jesus. That Abraham saw Jesus' day and rejoiced or became overjoyed has a parallel with Moses' experience. So Abraham's experience and Moses' experience are alike in that regard. In Hebrews eleven twenty-five to 27, Moses is said to have had respect for the reward more than for the shame of suffering the reproach of Christ with his people. It also says that Moses endured as one who saw the invisible. That is, the invisible God. So we can put these two together and an exploding insight occurs. Moses, like Abraham, also saw Jesus' day and rejoiced. Both Moses and Abraham saw Jesus in the prospective light of hope. 
We also see Jesus, and so we too endure and carry on. Back to John, though. It says that John bore testimony about Jesus, the Son of God. So did Moses in Hebrews 3.5. Moses, in fact, not only as a man, but his whole spiritual history was speaking of something that was to be spoken of in the future. So as Hebrews 3.5 says, Now Moses, on the one hand, was faithful as a servant in all God's house. And then it goes on to say, For a testimony, marturion, to that which would be spoken in the future. What was spoken in Moses' future? Well, it's found right in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God, who spoke in the prophets in times of old, has in these last days spoken in a son. So Moses' whole life and testimony was of what God would speak in a son in these last days, which is explained throughout all of Hebrews, in fact, throughout all the New Testament. Moses' fidelity as a servant in all God's house was a testimony of what would be spoken in the future. What was to be spoken in Moses' future is what God spoke in his son with definitive finality in these last days, Hebrews 1-2. Again, we have stated what this auxasis is. It is an allowing of a greater prestige to Jesus, an amplification of his prestige. Auxasis this stated auxasis is Moses as a faithful servant in God's house, but Christ as a son over God's house. 3, 5 to 6a. See, we're moving creatively through an exegesis of this passage. The last clause of this paragraph comes down to the readers of this discourse, and that's where it comes right down to your doorstep and mine. The last clause of this paragraph comes down to the readers of this discourse, the original readers and the hearers of this sermon, even down to us, to you and me. It says, whose house we show ourselves to be. If only we hold fast to the boldness and the boast of our hope. Hold to this confident hope. This confidence has a great reward promised with regard to holding it, Hebrews 10.35. So there's one thing above all that characterizes those who are God's house. God's house is like the church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades won't hold up against its assault. Those who are God's house are also called those of the household of faith. And that means faith, fidelity, and faithfulness. Hebrew, that's Galatians 6.10. There's a great connection of Hebrews and Galatians in many ways. So those who are called God's house are also called those of the household of faith. God's house is characterized by faith, fidelity, and faithfulness, according to Galatians 6.10. According to Hebrews 3.6, those who reveal themselves to be 
God's house, do so by holding on to the boast of their hope. You say, well, where's love in this? Love is Romans 5, 5. This hope is not a shame because the love of God is poured out in our hearts. So, yes, we show ourselves to be this house by loving one another and by loving all mankind and by loving God. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, Romans 8.28, 1 Corinthians 2.9, Mark 12.29-31. So faith and hope are not at odds here. In fact, faith is the substance of hoped-for things. In Hebrews 11, 1a, we might even say faith is the assurance of the hoped for day of Jesus, which is yet future to us. There is a day of Jesus yet future to us. 1 Corinthians 1, 8, 2 Corinthians 1, 14, Philippians 1, 6, 1, 10, 2, 16. It's the day capital D-A-Y, when we will be completed in glorious solidarity with Jesus, God's Son, along with all those who are waiting to be perfected with us, some of whom are mentioned in Hebrews 11, 2 through 40. God's house is what we demonstrate ourselves to be by doing just the one thing, Just this one thing, holding fast to the eschatological hope that is before us, which is not only the day of Jesus, it is Jesus. Luke Timothy Johnson, in his Hebrews commentary, was right to write with regard to Hebrews 7.19. Here, as in Hebrews 6.15-19, the term hope, elpis, E-L-P-I-S, is a way of designating Jesus himself. This is certainly verified in other places as well, like Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. 1 Timothy 1.1, Christ Jesus, our hope. The same could be said about faith. The coming of faith and the advent of Christ are simultaneous and interchangeable realities. Galatians 3.23 to 25. Again, the hope is Jesus. For us to hold fast to this hope, as we wind down to a close here, for us to hold fast, hold on tight, we could say, to this hope, a certain thing is required. It is to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit day by day, in Scripture, mostly, in Scripture, where his voice is heard afresh in Scripture. And when we hear his voice, not to harden our hearts, stiff-arm him, bypass what he's saying in order to maintain our interest in cephalogy, the study of elections, (laughs) or what's going on in the world, or turn our attention to the riots, or fear that we're going to be doxxed, trolled, canceled, blasted by people, shamed. No, we listen for the still, small voice, which comes more often than not in Scripture. 
in the form of Scripture, recalled to our mind. We might just say, oh, I just thought of that Scripture, when in fact that might be the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Today, if you hear his voice, what do we call this year? The year of today. For those in the phalanx, you might remember that. So, don't harden your hearts, he says, like a certain generation of people did in what we will call the wanderers of the no man's land generation. Hold on to this hope. Boast in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3.3, 3, and carry boldly on. Your hope is a sure hope, for Jesus, as our hope, is already beyond the veil and in future world for you. He's already in future world for which we hope. That's how sure the hope is. He is there as the forerunner for us. Remember the word promeity from Romans. For us. Hebrews 6.20. He waits for us there as does the cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 12.1 who are cheering us on. They're in the stands. We're in the arena. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. May it be transformed by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of grace, into great encouragement for the hearers. Pour your strength and might into our inner being, Father, through the word we hear. Train us more and more to hear day by day the voice of the Holy Spirit especially in the recalling of scriptures, which aren't just us recalling the letter of the word, but just might be the Holy Spirit and his voice to us. Grant us the grace that we do not harden our hearts because of everything else that's going on around us so that we will instead be occupied with, in fact, that we may with the eyes of our heart see Jesus. We thank you for this in his name. Amen.